We never really say a given word in the same way twice. You know, kind of like a snowflake. Every snowflake is different. It's the same thing with words. So in a sense, when we record the audio signal, the acoustic signal of a word, it is like observing something that was a unique event. Um, but those unique events are associated with individual people. They're produced by individual people. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Dr. Sam Tilson of Cornell's Linguistics Department discusses his grant-funded research into the emergence and variation of dialects. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Today, we are joined by Sam Tilson. Dr. Tilson is an associate professor of linguistics here at Cornell and a recent recipient of one of the College of Arts and Sciences New Frontiers grants for his research on dialects. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Sam. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We like to ask our guests a little bit about their background and their path with languages. What does it look like for you? Well, this might surprise you to learn, but I am not someone who speaks a lot of languages. Um, I'm not a linguist who has my bread and butter in knowing a lot of different languages. Sure. I'm more of a cognitive science sort of linguist. Mm -hmm. And so I'm actually not a very good language learner. And mm. the language that I did learn in high school and in college was Latin. So okay. not much of a conversational language. Um, and, uh, you know, for whatever reason, I never really became fluent in language other than English. Mm -hmm. I did learn some Spanish. I did a little bit of field work in Mexico. Oh, nice. um, but uh, I was barely able to communicate with uh, <laughs> Spanish speakers there. So yeah. I'm sure you are a good language learner, though. That's possible. Uh, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I am I am really a bad language learner though. And so I have a pet theory. I have a pet theory. Okay. So you know there is variation in how easily people learn sure. new oh, languages. Sure. Of course, of yeah. Of course, right? I have a theory that it and I don't know if this is so much I think people have studied this. So I think that your perceptual acuity in terms of your like auditory acuity mm -hmm. plays a large role in helping you bootstrap the mm. acquisition of a new language. Mm -hmm. And I happen to be somebody I'm like tone deaf. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want to hear mm -hmm. me sing. Uh -huh. like, many people tell they'll be do not sing. You're terrible. Ah. And I mean it's strange that I'm a phonetician, but I you know I'm more of a motor control yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. phonetician. I study no. you know, how we control the movements of the tongue and the lips and the jaw. And I've always been very bad at hearing. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the reason I give people why, you know, when they when they tell me that people think I don't have an accent, I tell them, well, I have a good ear, you know, and I've always been more musically inclined than scientifically inclined. And I, I think that definitely does help. It does, yeah. Mimicking sounds. Yeah. One of your areas of interest, though, is social networks and speech. Uh, in your words, every social interaction has the potential to change us. Tell us more about this. Right. Every social interaction has the potential to change us. It, it sounds a little deeper than maybe what I mean by that. <laughs> 
which is simply that when we are communicating with other people, we are storing memories of how they're talking with us, how Mm -hmm. they're speaking to us. And those memories can influence how we subsequently speak uh, to other people. And in that sense, whenever we're communicating, whenever we're talking to people, we are potentially being changed. And Hmm. these may be very subtle changes, but they're changes that we can observe. And they've been observed in experimental paradigms in many different ways. And they're sort of uh, a likely basis for the variation that we see in how people speak Hmm. uh, in a given language, dialectal variation, a variation in it's contextually conditioned. We speak different ways in different contexts, as well as uh, variation across languages. It's interesting. So you and your collaborator, uh, James Sethna, recently received a new Frontiers grant for your research into emerging dialects. Tell us about this research and what you hope to achieve. Okay. Well, actually, a good way to understand it is to start with a thought experiment and what I'm going to be talking about in this thought experiment is, is linguistic behavior. I want to describe what I mean by that. So when I'm talking about linguistic behaviors, I mean a wide variety of things. The words that you choose to use when you're speaking, mm-hmm. the order in which you, you speak those words, uh, as well as things like variations in the sounds that you produce when you're sure. producing the word, right? And, you know, one of the things that I think people don't appreciate so much is that you never really say a given word in the same way twice. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, kind of like a snowflake. Every snowflake sure, is different. Sure. Right. Um, it's the same thing with words. And so, in a sense, when we record the audio signal, the acoustic signal of a word, it is like observing something that was a unique event. Um, But those unique events are associated with individual people. They're produced Mm, by individual people. And so the the basis of what we're studying is observations of those events. And to give you a specific example, uh, there's a word that it's kind of interesting and that people produce it different ways. I'm going to spell it for you. Mm -hmm. I want you to let me know how you would say it. Okay. So the word, you're probably familiar with this word. It's a little bit of a low-frequency word, but it's spelled C-L-I-Q-U-E. How do you pronounce that word? Click. Yeah, click. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that uh, in the UK, they pronounce it click. Mm-hmm. Mm. And very commonly in academic contexts, especially this is a word that comes up in graph theory, um, it's pronounced click as well. And this was shocking to me uh Maybe for the same reason that shocking to you, when I was growing up in high school, we used this word. Mm-hmm. And we used yeah. it to describe, sure. you know, uh, a group of people who kind of hung out with their own little in-group, yeah. right? Yeah. And, um, uh, and it was only when I started studying a little bit of graph theory in grad school that mm-hmm. I learned, oh, there's a pronunciation of this word that's that's clique. It's, it's a semantically related word. It's the same word with a slightly different, you know, different meaning. But... Um, so that, that sort of variation in terms of, you know, a difference in the, the vowel of the word, the quality of the vowel, that's the sort of thing that we might be interested in studying is uh, a type of variation that's 
tells us, you know, if people are speaking in similar or different ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's go on to the thought experiment. Okay. If, uh, let's imagine that you took a, a small community of speakers and you put them on a deserted island. Okay. Maybe a sort of Gilligan's Island sort of scenario. <laughs> you familiar with that show? Mm-hmm. The, the question that you might ask is, well, given that this group of speakers has no contact with other people, sure. what would you expect to happen to their linguistic behavior? Um, would it essentially become uniform and homogeneous? Hmm. Would they all eventually start to speak the same? Or uh, would there be complex patterns of a variation even within this small network where maybe some group of people says some words some way and the other mm-hmm. says them another way. Mm. And, you know, when you think about that question and, and why there might be variation, the, the main reasons we see linguistic variation are generally one of three things, I think. So one reason we see dialectal variation, variation in, within a language, is simply geography. People that live on, you know, the other side of the mountain, we don't interact with them. Sure. So they develop slightly different ways of talking. Well, that's not an issue on our small little island, okay? Mm-hmm. Another reason we see variation is uh, essentially uh, social systems, social hierarchies, differences in, mm-hmm. in class. And, and if, you know, we imagine maybe that on this island we find a way to prohibit that kind of social stratification and differences mm-hmm. in class or something, um, we would could remove that factor to some mm-hmm. extent, right? Um, well, uh, and then the third reason we see variation might just be kind of random chance. You know, people uh, randomly, for whatever reason, you know, begin to do something sure. differently. We don't know what the, the reason is. Um, well, if, if we could study some sort of language evolution scenario where we could really... We can control that system in a, a precise way that that's, that suits our interests. Could we, would we observe this uh, tendency toward uniformity and in, in homogeneity, or would we nonetheless still see patterns of dialect-like variation emerging mm-hmm. among mm-hmm. these these speakers? And so that's an interesting question to me. It's a very difficult question to ask experimentally, mm-hmm, right? Sure. And there's really a fascinating study that was done by some grad students uh, a decade ago from the University of Chicago where they kind of came close to doing this in a way, a very indirect way, but it's worth worth talking about. Are you familiar with the show Big Brother? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what these grad students did is they took... <laughs> web episodes of the United Kingdom version of <laughs> Big Brother. The UK uh-huh. has their own version, right? And maybe for the audience, you know, what is Big Brother? So it's it's a reality show, um, not unlike the real world, except it's more dystopian in that the <laughs> contestants are, you know, required to stay within this house, yep. right? They can't leave. And so these grad students took the uh, audio data from the web episodes <laughs> and they analyzed a very specific phonetic variable associated with the speech of the participants in the show. Yeah. And, um, I mean, there's a small fraction of the 
the information that, that's available in these episodes, but a very specific phonetic variable that has to do with uh, how long between when you kind of release a closure of a stop consonant, uh, it takes before the vocal folds begin to vibrate. Okay, we call this voice onset time. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it, it is. And what they observed is that over the three months of this series of yeah. the show, that there were these really fascinating dynamics to this variable at the level of the participants. That, that if you looked at how over time this variable evolved for participants, there were changes that um, you wouldn't expect there to be hmm. if you just kind of assume that speech is a sort of static behavior, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. we know it isn't. But one of the even more fascinating things about the study is that uh, for whatever reasons, the producers of the show at some point decided to perturb the house by dividing it into a so-called heaven and hell. They made <laughs> they made the half of the contestants live in a single room where they shared a bathroom and only had a kitchenette. Oh boy! The other half got to live in heaven with the hot tub and uh-huh. and you know bedrooms and ever, all the amenities and. They did this about halfway through the show. And the remarkable thing is that you can see the effects of this mm-hmm. on these phonetic mm-hmm. variables that they're oh. measuring in that there's a sort of drastic changes that occur in response to this <laughs> heaven and hell divide that was wow. imposed during the show. And, you know, the thinking is that presumably that divide really perturbed the social system of the sure. participants in the show. And because they're constantly interacting with one another and only, you know, each other, really, that that those that perturbation is manifested in their linguistic behavior hmm. as well, okay? Um, so that's a little bit of background, and it, it leads to the question of, well, can we, you know, more specifically identify how the interactions between people lead to those changes in linguistic behavior. In, in that, that Big Brother study, they weren't really able to characterize the, the interactions in a quantitative way. And they frankly only had a, a fraction of, you know, the, an hour of produced television mm, sure. out of the oh, yeah. no. entirety of it, no. right? So ideally, you'd like to be able to, to record and observe every interaction and... Um, and then to conduct your analysis on all of the data with a quantification of, of the interaction itself, and maybe even control how frequently people are interacting or who's acti- interacting mm-hmm. with who, and proceed to study uh, the behavior in, in that way. So I tried to do this um, hmm. uh, several years back, and I did it in the context of a, a, a graduate seminar mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the Department of Linguistics. And we essentially had 10 undergrads come into the lab once a week and they were undergrads who didn't know each other okay we had them play a game in pairs mm-hmm. with each other where it's a map navigation game so one player has a map with a path on the screen in front of them the other player is sitting across from them and and the goal is for the the person with the path on the map to communicate to the the receiver who has the map without the path mm-hmm communicate how to kind of click to draw this this yeah. path, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a cooperative game. And we record them while they're doing this, right? And they play the game in short 
rounds that are a minute and a half. And every round we we remix the players so that they're hmm. playing with someone else. Mm -hmm. And we kind of randomly remix them and we do this over and over and over again. We do it for an hour and a half. And then we had them come back the next week and we had them do it again for an hour and a half. And so over the course of that experiment, they played, you know, some 500 individual <laughs> games yeah. of, of this. And then we proceed to, to do our linguistic analyses on, on those data and see how their behaviors change over the course of those 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now there are, you know, some issues with the design in terms of, you know, what are they doing outside of this experiment? Well, sure. we don't know. We were not able to control that. It's not, you know, we haven't gotten IRB approval to lock people <laughs> in a <laughs> house yet. Uh, but nonetheless, um, we were able to see that certain behaviors that are quite specific to the map navigation game that you're unlikely to be, words that you're unlikely to be saying outside of that game because they're words that we made up to name places on the map mm -hmm. um, or certain you know, ways of describing things. It's unlikely that, that in, their, you know, uh, in their daily lives they're doing a lot of this. Sure. So uh, we were able to see that over that 10 weeks there was a, a really strong tendency toward a uniformity of how people were pronouncing the words that these new words that we introduced to them, these new names for locations, and how they were communicating the instructions to one another. Okay. Nonetheless, we weren't able to draw any very strong conclusions from that. For one, because the experiment didn't go long enough and we ran out mm, of money sure. to pay participants, <laughs> right? Uh, and in fact, when we had stopped, there was some evidence that there in fact, were two different groups of those speakers with respect to certain behaviors in, in terms of, uh, much like pronouncing clique or click, mm -hmm. some of the speakers would pronounce this word like the clique way and others the mm -hmm. click way. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to have stabilized to some extent, right? Now, we don't know, had we continued the experiment, it would have eventually disappeared, or had we continued the sure. experiment, maybe other new forms of variation would have appeared. And so that's part of the motivation for wanting to study this is we really don't know, you know, what will happen when we observe these sorts of behaviors over an extended period of time and try to do so in a way that, that eliminates the uh, potential influence of, of the outside world, mm -hmm. right? Um, I mean, we did a number of things in that experiment that were sort of severe, like prohibiting people from talking with each other unless they were playing the game. So mm. they were required to, you know, basically ignore each other when they were there in the lab. Sure. Um, but ultimately, it's it's hard, you know, it's, it's hard to know what the uh, effect of simply being in the same room is with another person, right? Yeah. I may develop, you know, social attitudes towards someone just from being in the same room with them, even mm -hmm. if I'm not necessarily talking with them. Of course, you yeah. know. Um, so one of the things that we're aiming to do in this uh, grant is to conduct this experiment online um, hmm. and without any video to try mm. to remove more of oh, the social information yeah. that's present um, when we're speaking with people. Um, now, of course, there's information just in our voices itself, and we'll never be able to really avoid that. Um, but we are trying to create more controlled scenarios where we can observe many interactions mm -hmm. and 
see if we can trace the changes in behavior that occur to those those controlled interactions. Hmm. Okay. So what uh, prompted your interest in this topic other than reality TV? So that leads me to the New Frontiers grant. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my interests in language is not necessarily an interest in language per se. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe this is a unexpected uh, for a linguist to say, well, I'm not all that interested in language itself. Um, but I've always been very interested in, in patterns, uh, mm-hmm. patterns in the natural physical world. And so one of the things that I'm interested in in linguistics as a linguist is in ways in which linguistic patterns uh, bear similarities to patterns that we see in physical and biological systems. And so I've always been uh, interested in trying to come up with uh, good analogies for phenomena that are that we see in language. And uh, this led me to, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, try to think of, you know, what, what, what's a good physical analogy for this uh, idea that every interaction that we have has the potential to change us? Mm-hmm. And there's a, a certain type of uh, physical system uh, that I think is a, a pretty decent analogy in some ways. This type of uh, physical system is called... Uh, it's a material we call a, a spin glass. Hmm. And uh, in some ways, uh, magnetic materials are like this. Uh, they're systems that are composed of lots of little small particles uh, that can have one of two states, like an up or down state. Okay, And in spin glasses, if we uh, observe them over time, we sometimes see that these spins of the individual particles come to align so that they're all be up or they're all be down. And when they when they do that, uh, the material becomes ferromagnetic, okay? Um, but whether or not that happens depends on other sorts of parameters, like the temperature of the system and the strengths of the interactions between the particles themselves, their distances as well. And if some of those parameters uh, are in, uh, have different values, uh, then in the case of a fully magnetized system, what we can see is a disordered state is reached where the particles don't all align, but maybe reach sort of local pockets of alignment. Mm-hmm. There might be a little place here where mm-hmm. they're up, a little place over here where they're down. And this is a very commonly studied uh, uh, physical system. There's actually a kind of classic uh, ideal model called the uh, Ising model. I, not unlike clique, it has another pronunciation, which is the icing model. So you'll get that sort of variation as well. Um, where uh, these sorts of phenomena can occur. Okay. And so in this analogy, I mean, I guess I should mention, you know, so I have this interest in, in physical analogies. And that led me to uh, seek out uh, a physicist to hmm. you know, discuss this with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, even before I did this, I did things that are maybe unusual. I sat in on a uh, first-year graduate uh, statistical physics class here, yeah. um, taught by my collaborator, uh, uh-huh. Jim mm-hmm. Sethna. So mm-hmm. 
Uh, I liked the class so much, I subsequently sat in on a graduate seminar oh, nice. on something called the Renormalization Group. Uh, and, you know, the math is way over my head for some <laughs> of these things. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, these are ideas about how systems can be studied across a range of scales, range of spatial and temporal scales, um, that I think uh, that physicists are quite familiar with, but that most linguists mm -hmm. don't really think about. And so, you know, one of the things I want to do is, is you know, see how far we can push this mapping of yeah. ideas that are used in the study of physics to uh, the study of language. Okay, so, you know, going back to, to the analogy, if, if we think of the particles uh, as people, mm -hmm. okay, uh, we can also map the, the spins of the particles, the up or down states, to different pronunciations of a vowel, like click or click, the E or the A and click, or, or, or in the Ising and Ising model, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and then we can think of the, the forces that, that particles exert on one another in these materials as conversational interactions. You know, when people are interacting, in a sense, they're exerting forces sure. on their internal cognitive states, all right, of, of one another. Uh, and so, depending upon the frequency of those interactions and how they're distributed throughout the network, um, we can see potentially see the emergence of, on the one hand, uniform states, or on the other hand, potentially disordered states that are more like uh, dialectal variation. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, the the point of that is that that it can give us maybe a better understanding or insight into the mechanisms that give rise to variation uh, in how we speak. Mm -hmm. And because it's so hard to s logistically study sure. you know, how people's linguistic behavior evolves yeah. in, in their daily lives and, and uh, on long time scales, it's useful to have a mathematical computational model to use to kind of help make predictions or explore what happens when you do things like turn up the temperature and turn up the interaction frequency of, 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 of people in the network. And um, so the, there's an integration between the modeling and the experimental research that's, that's, uh, uh, that's quite nice. What is your hypothesis? Well, you know, I, it's more of a framing of uh, competing hypotheses. Okay. So I don't think I have one specific hypothesis that I'm, that I'm uh, latched onto. What I really am interested in testing... Um, whether or not the uh, the way that interactions occur can be used to predict the emergence of uh, mm -hmm. multiple states of of mm -hmm. behavior, um, and you know, in a sense, that's you know, that could be thought of as many different hypotheses. Um, sure, but uh, I do hope to use the data that we collect to. Um, uh, uh, essentially create a, a corpus that would be open mm -hmm. to other researchers nice. uh, to use, um, ultimately. And, uh, you know, this maybe could be thought of as a, uh, I mean, I guess the work that we're doing could be thought of as an intermediate step in a much larger scale project, right? So I you know, started off with just a simple mm -hmm. network of 10 people. Yeah. What we want to do in this grant is similar, but do that ten times, mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, have the the course of those those ten experiments go run a little longer, okay? Um, but 
you could imagine scaling that up even further, uh, sure. uh, which is sort of the long-term goal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've always had the idea with a few friends of mine that we're going to open a coffee shop that's attached to a language school for families, and we're going to call it the Glottal Stop. <laughs> Maybe we can turn the Glottal Stop into some kind of a language house on campus And it will be like the Hotel California where the students just can never leave. And that way we have them and we can study their behavior. Well, that would be great. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed to that. Okay. I wonder if the IRB would be okay with that. I mean, they, we'll, we'll frame we, it appropriately. Yes, yes. We need to have their full consent. Yes, of, yeah, course, of course. Of course. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I see no ethical issues with this whatsoever. No, none, none, none. <laughs> well... Sam, one of your published goals for your research is to inform machine learning systems that use linguistic signals to monitor social group dynamics or individuals' health. Can you elaborate on the benefits and challenges of making human communication understandable to machines? And we feel it is our responsibility to ask, do our listeners need to worry about a robot uprising? Well, those are great questions. <laughs> are they? Are they all? <laughs> Especially the last one. Yes, about yes. Robot uprising, yes. Um, so, I mean, it, I guess it depends on what you mean by making machines understand communication, mm-hmm. right? I don't think that this research is uh, very directly um, going to lead to an understanding of language by machines. I think mm-hmm. we're really far away from machines that can understand and whatever we mean by understand. I, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, I mean, that's meaning is, is quite complicated, right? Uh, I don't think we understand it. Uh, uh, and so I'm not, I'm not so worried about them understanding uh, language from this research. I, I do think that these, the, the insights we gain might be helpful in situations where You want to monitor the social dynamics of mm-hmm. a group of people who might be in a situation where they're working very closely for extended period of times or, or for a long period of time. And, um, I mean, certainly that's an invasive sort of monitoring. But, you know, the way that we communicate to others always involves very subtle cues um, that we might not even be aware of. Sure. And... So to the extent that we can gain a better understanding of how our interactions can change the way we subsequently speak, that should help us develop systems that can better detect unexpected changes in the social dynamics of, of a group of speakers. Um, they could also potentially let us recognize when a particular individual might uh, be experiencing some sort of change that that they might otherwise not verbalize mm-hmm. or even be aware of. Mm-hmm. So those are the sorts of objectives that would follow a little more indirectly from the research, but um, nonetheless could be of benefit to society. As for the robot uprising, <laughs> I think that the bigger concern of at the moment <laughs> is probably the historically unprecedented change in the 
scale, spatial and temporal scale at which information can mm-hmm. be communicated. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yep. Yep. Right? So media can be disseminated over mm-hmm. a vast spatial scale at very quick time mm-hmm. scales. That's mm-hmm. just so new. Yeah. Right? Yep. And I think it's extremely difficult to anticipate the consequences of that, yep. although I'm sure people are trying. And it's even hard to, it's hard to see and recognize how much it already has influenced us sure. in our society, but certainly it has, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we have these hard to predict, hard to anticipate, hard to even recognize changes in society. And who knows what they're doing? Maybe they're making us more uh, homogeneous. Sure, you know, may- sure. On the other hand, there could be uh, ways in which they're polarizing us and making us, uh, <laughs> in kind of making our society um, more like a set of dialects of, of a language. Than <laughs> a, you know. um, I think that the robot uprising is going to be quite gradual. And what happens now in our society as a consequence of this, this mm. information scale transmission mm-hmm. is is going to determine how quickly and how gradual the, the robot uprising might be. Um, we do do a lot of things already that in some ways are integrating ourselves biologically, physiologically, with machines hmm. or with uh, you know things that we've manufactured, right? Like we take drugs. We mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we have a lot of uh, you know dietary systems that we are exploring as a society nowadays, right? Yeah. So we're all and you know and we certainly have sometimes we have physical devices that we sure. right. So I think that the robot uprising will not be as much of a robot uprising, but a gradual transition to some sort of cybernetic hmm. organism. But maybe hmm. my bigger concern is: are we are we going to retain? Um, sort of individual and diverse uh, behaviors huh. and, mm-hmm. yeah. and you know, ways of living and perspectives, or by that time we will be sort of a kind of uniform Borg-like mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> entities. And, and I, you know, uh, who knows? I, I'm sure I'll be dead by then, so... <laughs> <laughs> so it's matter. fun to think about. <laughs> right, right. Um, but it is worrying. And I don't know, what are your thoughts on the whole... Uh, information uh, scale uh, phenomenon. Yeah, you bring up a good a good point. I mean, it's 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 wild thinking about just in the short span of the last few decades, right? The the invention of the internet, the the cell phone, things like that, you know, thinking about how I grew up, I none of that existed or wasn't at least accessible to me, you know, as I was going through through high school and just thinking about how I communicated with friends growing up as opposed to kids in middle and high school, how they communicate right now. It's, it's, it's wild. It's, it's definitely very different. And I find it disconcerting maybe a little bit. Yeah. I I personally find, you know, you're one, you're sort of, you know, hypothesizing the potential for, for the technological growth to be, a unifying force at some point down the line, you know, you will be assimilated sort of thing. Um, and I, I, I mean, obviously the Borg as a, 
<laughs> as, as something symbolic there is a little grim, but I would love to see some evidence that the rate with which we communicate has some unifying force. I think there's some evidence of that happening in the last couple of decades, but I also mm -hmm. see us being in this sort of crisis mm -hmm. of epistemology right now where everyone believes that where they're getting their information instantaneously from is right and the other one is lying, and that is deeply disconcerting for me. Um, just a, a total inability to cross this wall of communication, so... I don't know. <laughs> That's... Yeah, it's. Um, I worry about it. Uh, in maybe it sounds like you do too. I mean, I worry about a lot of things. But right. yes, this too. Right. <laughs> it's hard to know what, if anything, to do about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's lots of potential in technology, right? If right. if we use it in the right way. But that is a topic for another day. Sam, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? I think by Googling the Cornell Phonetics Lab would be a good place to start. There you can find a lot of information about work that uh, myself and students are doing. Fantastic. And we'll include a link to the Cornell Phonetics Lab uh, and some information about that in the show notes. Sam, this has been fascinating, and yep. we so appreciate you taking the time. Um, before we sign off, however... We'd like to ask you to share a word in a language you speak, love, are learning, want to learn, that makes you laugh. What is that word? Oh, my gosh. I don't know if I have one that makes me laugh. The word that I had thought to share maybe would be clique and click because of its <laughs> relevance to the conversation. A word that makes me laugh, I don't know, um, fiddlesticks is just a funny word for me. I like to use that word when I can't. Otherwise, use other words. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good with that. I think I think those both both click slash click and fiddlesticks are th those are some hashtags that yes, I think will yes, suit us well. That, so. that, indeed. <laughs> well, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today, Sam. Thank you for having me. Join us next week to hear from Corey Crane. Dr. Crane is an associate professor and language program director of German at the University of Alabama. She gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on creating pathways of perspective shifting through structured critical reflection. And we will dive deeper into reflective practices in language instruction. Until then. Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu. Or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode. Yeah. I, I played saxophone in, in jazz band when I was in high school, and we even had our own band. We had a funk fusion band. and I, What was it called? Uh, the Righteous Fists of Harmony. Oh, my God, I love it. Yeah. We won their Battle of the Band senior year. But, the, you know, I, I, I could play, I could jam on the saxophone. Yeah. But my, my, 
you know, my Achilles heel was that I couldn't really hear myself all that well. Uh-huh. So I couldn't tell if I was in tune. I couldn't uh-huh. hear, I couldn't like hear a piano chord progression and pick up like, oh, this is, this is where we're at. And, you know, this is what key we're in. I would have to know ahead of time. And mm-hmm. I couldn't hear it if I was out of tune. That was right. my downfall. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yes, I'm a musician also. That, and so I find that very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. 